Welcome to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Today, we'll hear how efforts to connect New Jersey and New York City are moving forward after a long wait. This project turns the North, the Portal North Bridge from a choke point to an access point. A new discovery in New Jersey that gives us more information about the Revolutionary War. So I'm playing baseball and everybody comes over to me, Jim, Jim, we need your help. We found a femur. And I'm like, wait, what in the world? And we'll hear my nationally recognized conversation with documentarian and filmmaker Ken Burns. Now, it didn't end too well for Muhammad Ali in that he was imprisoned in an ironic way by this Parkinson's disease that slowed and silenced and gave him that familiar tremor that we remember from uh, 25 years ago at the Atlanta Olympics. But... But in his journey, it is the hero's journey. All this coming up today on the WBGO Journal. Work is now starting on a new portal bridge, a key part to the bigger gateway project that will expand rail service from New Jersey into Manhattan. Officials, including Governor Phil Murphy, broke ground earlier this week. We haven't seen infrastructure investment like this that we're undertaking across our state or in the country for that matter in a generation or more. We're building a stronger New Jersey. The Portal Bridge has been a key connection where hundreds of Amtrak and New Jersey transit trains pass over daily, but the more than century-old structure requires speed restrictions and has malfunctioned when opened at times. Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg says that a new bridge will be a game-changer. This project turns the the Portal North Bridge from a choke point to an access point. It modernizes the way that people and goods get to and from this region, economic product. New Jersey U.S. Senator Bob Menendez was also on hand for the update this week. It will spare hundreds of thousands of passengers each day from malfunctions and delays. For travelers, it will mean less time stuck on the train and more time with their families. The new Portal North Bridge will have a modern span that does not need to open for river traffic. It's scheduled to be completed in 2026. Researchers with Rowan University have announced the discovery of a mass Revolutionary War battlefield grave in Gloucester County. The discovery of the rare site will give historians and the public more knowledge about an American victory that was a boost in the fight for independence. The remains of at least 13 Hessian soldiers were discovered at Red Bank Battlefield Park on a quarter acre of land Gloucester County bought a couple of years ago. Hessians were Germans who fought for the British. History professor Jennifer Janowski, the park's director, says the discovery was a surprise, especially since prior studies of the area did not indicate any remains buried on the site. Based on maps from the period, identifying the location of burials in association with ground-penetrating radar and sample testing, no burials were found. That was until June 26th. County Commissioner Jim Jefferson was in the park that day for an event. So I'm playing baseball and everybody comes over to me, Jim, Jim, we need your help. We found a femur. And I'm like, wait, what in the world? The discovery happened during the final public dig day for war artifacts on the quarter-acre plot. Wade Katz, an archaeologist with South River Heritage Consulting, directed the survey on the site. Based on the historical record, there wasn't supposed to be anybody here. They had been buried down by the Whittle House and had washed into the Delaware River in the, by the middle of the 19th century. So there's no record in the, in the documents at all that anything or anybody was buried in this space. 
The remains have since been exhumed and turned over to the New Jersey State Police Forensic Unit, where forensic anthropologists will study them. Once finished, the remains will be reinterred at another site. WBGO News Department is proud to say we recently won four national PMJA awards. One was for Best Sports Feature, based on my Sports Jam podcast interview with acclaimed documentarian Ken Burns, who's captivated us with docs like jazz, baseball, and many others. His most recent four-part documentary to air on PBS was titled Muhammad Ali. Here's our chat about a powerful piece of work going deep into the life of the late boxing great and humanitarian. First of all, congratulations on such an amazing project. Oh, that's very kind of you. And and I have to share the credit. Um, it doesn't make me look good, but the co-directors are Sarah Burns, my daughter, and her husband, David McMahon, whom we've been collaborating with for an awfully long time. And they are also the writers of this. So a huge uh, credit uh, goes to them and our extraordinary team of editors and and footage finders to get the stuff. I mean, there's lots of documentaries on Muhammad Ali. None have been from birth to death in quite as detail, but I think we also have been able to offer not just the experts and the pundits, but also the family members who've been calling us crying, saying, I've never seen that picture of my dad, or I've never seen that picture of my husband or that piece of footage. So we're sort of thrilled by the early response. Absolutely, and I will touch upon you working with your daughter and your son-in-law a little bit later. Ken, you mentioned in an interview with Bob Costas, I think nearly 30 years ago, that you show frailty and your subjects provide a sympathetic view at times with a storytelling style that prompts emotion. That certainly is the case with Muhammad Ali. My earliest memories that I can think of as a child with my father are walking through airports and being in crowds and, and feeling in my the vibrations of people's clapping and shouts in my chest. And just looking at my dad, you know, like, who is this person? And it was all the time, anywhere we went, you're the greatest, we love you, and the clapping, and Muhammad. I loved feeling all the energy and the love that he felt. What touched you the most about this project once it's been completed? Well, I think I realize having looked back on 40 plus years of making films and many of them biographies and certainly biographies being the constituent building blocks of the big series like the Civil War and Baseball and Jazz, just how important a figure he is, how mythic he is. Uh, you know, Walt Whitman describes this kind of idea of an uber-American, the, the, someone who contradicts himself. And Muhammad Ali is a great teacher, a great mythic figure in our culture. He's obviously the greatest athlete of the 20th century. There's no, I, I, I don't 
think you could have any argument about that, and I'm willing to have that kind of discussion uh, and respect some people who say, no, it's, it's somebody else. I don't know who that somebody else is. But he's also somebody who intersects with all the major questions of the last half of the 20th century, and lo and behold, as we lift our heads up after those six years of working, he is a figure speaking uh, to us directly about what's going on now in every way, shape, and form, if it's race, if it's sports, if it's politics if it's religion, if it's Me Too, if it's Black Lives Matter, he's there and he's doing it with a heart that evolved, that is so capacious that you, you realize that there are very few people who die the most beloved, if anyone, the most beloved person on the planet. And that's what happened to him. I just finished a biography on, on Ernest Hemingway that didn't end too well. Now, it, it didn't end too well for Muhammad Ali in that he was imprisoned in an ironic way by this Parkinson's disease that slowed and silenced and gave him that familiar tremor that we remember from uh, 25 years ago at the Atlanta Olympics. But, but in his journey, it is the hero's journey. It's the mythic journey of the hero. And so his flaws are magnified the way the Greek gods had strengths and weaknesses that were magnified uh, for them but for us. And so we see in him aspects of ourselves. When he says, I am the greatest, that pulls so many other people into that possibility of saying, you know what, despite the, the, the bad hand that I've been dealt, I, I can do something. And I find him, of all the biographies I've done, um, the, the most compelling and someone that my heart goes out to the most. I mean, I, I, this is awkward to say, I love him. Ali returned to the Spanish-style ranch house on four acres he and Belinda had recently purchased in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, just across the Delaware River from Philadelphia. He helped Belinda choose furnishings, kept up with family and friends by telephone, and occasionally entertained his three children, Mariam and the twins, Jamila and Rashida. But he was happiest on the road. I'm never home much, and they don't know me. My Miriam, the older one, know me, but the Rishim and Jamila, they don't know me too well. They're about a year old, and, and they give me a lot of trouble when I pick them up, but I have to start staying home more. But I think that the wife or the mother should train them, and when, by the time they're three years old, they should be ready to go to some type of school with enough home training to give them a good start. He likes kids. He likes to be around them for 20 minutes, and then he's ready to put them down. But uh, he can't. You know, he, he, he don't stay there long. He just, he just, for the moment, and he's done. But he was a great father. He made sure everybody had what they needed. And he was a great father. We certainly can see why. And in this eight-hour, four-part series, it is so timely right now. You just have this knack of, you know, bringing things. You plan them in advance. But, boy, when you pick the time to air them. You and PBS, it, it couldn't come at a better time. Well, you know, can I, can I tell you, Doug, it's so interesting. And I, I swear to God, we never think about drawing links, pointing neon signs to, oh, isn't this so much like Me Too? Or isn't this so much like about that? Mark Twain is supposed to have said, history doesn't repeat itself, which of course it doesn't. We like to use that. It's, history doesn't repeat itself, he said, but it rhymes. And I have never finished a project when you haven't looked up from having the struggle, the multi-year struggle of trying to tell a good story, and it's never easy, ever, ever easy, whether it's Vietnam War or Civil War or jazz or baseball or this. 
and you realize, oh my God, it's speaking to, and they all are like that. And, but none sort of contains the contradictions, the controversy, the undertow, the majesty that the story of Muhammad Ali does. You know, if you're looking for a a valentine to him, you're not going to find it. This guy is a womanizer. This guy is treats his opponents and particularly his main rival, Joe Frazier, using the Jim Crow language of the, uh, of the South in which he was raised. Uh, he knows better than that. And yet at the same time, you have this magnificent athlete who pays the ultimate price for entertaining us and also brings us a message of courage refusing induction into the draft based on religious beliefs. Uh, he scares us. He thrills us. He frustrates us. He ennobles us. And and it isn't just Americans. He's a world figure. And and that's why I've, I've called him mythic. I, I just think he's, you know, so much larger than life. And then, therefore, he becomes a great teacher for the rest of us. The name itself, Muhammad Ali, what struck me in watching this four-part series is how many years it took for newspapers, mainstream media, broadcasters, even his opponents in the ring to stop calling him Cassius Clay. Cassius Clay. They kept referring to him as Cassius and not recognizing him as Muhammad Ali. What what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think for for the African-American experience in the United States, which is a 402-year-old struggle, right? I mean, this isn't George Floyd and Rodney King and Emmett Till, you know, stuff that's happened in the last 70 years. This has been going on for 402 years. And so it's really a struggle for recognition to be heard. And so here you have a man who makes a decision on his own to to join a religious sect that, you know, is imperfect and, and in many ways uh, very dangerous. Um, but he's done that, and his he's changed his name. He's been given a new name by his the head of that sect, Elijah Muhammad, and nobody wants to follow it. And and in some ways, the whole second episode of our series is called "What's My Name." The first is the greatest. That's obvious. There's this kid from Louisville who you know he's barely put on a bo- pair of boxing gloves, and he's already declared himself the greatest. And the chutzpah, and the nerve, and the and the energy, and the and the wonderfulness of it, the improbability of it is great. But the second one is, please, this is who I am. Why can't you do this? And whether it's an Illinois State Athletic Commission or it's an opponent, they're 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 razzing, and he's asking to be heard. And that's it. All of us are asking to be heard. And it's particularly difficult in the African-American community because they have had the peculiar experience of being unfree in a supposedly free land. And that, you know, and that's what makes it so interesting that the African-American contribution is so great in the history of the United States, disproportionate to the percentage of their population because, you know, Nobody has to, you know, the genius of America is improvisation, right? Living free life. Nobody has to improvise more than somebody who is actually not free in a free land. And so all of my work begins to touch on that because if you're interested in America, it's all intertwined. And I think Ali is a fascinating way in which in the middle of the civil rights movement, which is about integration, he's about separation, Right, but yet he is the most integrated and accepting of people, and you know he's he's a loving man and father, and yet he's unfaithful to his wives. He's you know this you know 
perfect specimen of an athlete who, you know, descends to sort of really harmful language about particularly Joe Frazier, but, but other people, Terrell, you know, he was always belittling his opponent, even Foreman, you know, it's just... Great footage of him saying to, you know, Terrell, you know, in the ring, you know, what's my name? What's, what's my, my name? name? What's my name? And this is hugely important. And you begin to understand that this is... Um, a whole man trying to express and and does he make mistakes yes we all do and does he have flaws yes we all do and are you a, you know can you cancel him i suppose so but there's too much that we would lose of the athletic beauty and grace of the sacrifice of that life of the principle that he stood up for with his religious beliefs um, for the message of love that he eventually uh, brought to the entire world I, I can't I can't dispose of people and I don't think we can because then nobody survives nobody survives nobody's perfect and I think this proves to the public and all of the doubters out there that Ernie Terrell has no class whatsoever and you cannot compare him even in my uh, uh I don't think you have to say that really the man fought a courageous you would, fight you would say everything if I lost especially you now I won and let me have my say Terrell I proved that he wasn't nothing all right. Joe calling him a champion. And you better pronounce my name right from now. I'm tired of talking. I don't All right. The champ is diet. Muhammad, come here. Let me congratulate you. Joe Lewis tonight said you're a great fighter. I don't need Joe Lewis to tell me I'm a great fighter. I've been telling you for the last six years. We learn so much in Ken Burns' documentaries and in Muhammad Ali. When he is first training with Archie Moore, didn't last long <laughs> before he went to Angelo Dundee. I started liking his training methods to Mr. Miyagi and the Karate Kid. Exactly. <laughs> right. there's, there's something There's something so impossible. You know, we have the great uh, uh, boxer heavyweight champion, uh, Michael Bent, who's kind of uh, the guy who, when we start fights, he's our inside man telling us what's going on. He's taking a part. He's a wonderful guide for all of us, particularly those of us who aren't really drawn to boxing, except when it's somebody extraordinary. I mean, I don't know how it is. I don't really like boxing, but I made two films about boxing, one on Jack Johnson, the first African-American heavyweight, and now on Muhammad Ali with Sarah and Dave. But, but Michael's there to do it, and, and everything that he's doing is wrong. Like, you don't lean back, right, uh, to miss a point. You duck, right? And he's not doing any of that, and he's dancing, and he's doing the rope-a-dope at different times, and he's always adjusting and stuff. And so there's a kind of exquisite beauty to watching his his intelligence this is a this is a brutal sport a physically brutal sport that he brought this heart and this mind to now obviously other boxers have to bring their heart you have to want to beat your opponent you have to want it really bad and you can actually see as bent helps us understand and we can our eyes show us that in the first fraser fight fraser wanted it more and 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 it's very clear um but you see in Ali this exquisite way of trying to understand the dimensions of it. And, and I think no more so than in the Terrell fight when he's sick of people saying, you're Cassius Clay. And so he's just saying, he's punching. He's, he's really one of the great fights. He's, he's just dominating the whole thing. And he's just saying, what's my name? What's my name? And he's just asking to be respected as a man. And in the very beginning of our film, in the intro, he has this passionate statement that he makes from Deer Lake about how saying, I'm the guy who I'm the black guy who got up in your white television, in your white satellites, in your white this, and your white that, and I still stayed true 
to my people and who I was. I got rich and I didn't leave anybody behind. And that's a huge part of who he is. So when he's exonerated by the Supreme Court and has every reason to rejoice, he's saying, no, 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 people are having a tough time. There's, you know, there, stuff is happening to the, to the Rodney Kings of that day. People are losing their jobs. Justice isn't there. Yes, this was a momentary victory for me. But let's just remember that the struggle is much bigger than that. And that's true for everyone on the planet. That we can always bend toward a more perfect union, as our uh, Constitution puts it in the preamble. And so we think about the way that aspects of joining a, a Muslim faith, in which you know there's a, a significant minority in the United States, but in many parts of the world, Saharan and Sub-Saharan Africa, dominant, Middle East dominant, South uh, East uh, Asia dominant, uh, so you've got one of the world's big, great religions, which we Americans almost purposefully and intentionally distort and certainly don't try to understand, and he becomes the the person who does that. He also puts Africa on the map by fighting George Foreman in, in Kinshasa Zaire uh, in the rumble in the jungle, and all of a sudden the identification not just with Muslims and with African Americans, but with Africans around the world becomes uh, significant. So understanding how he moves from this kid who has these crazy sets of skills, boxing in Louisville, Kentucky, to being the most beloved man on our planet, that is a journey I will take and retake with these extraordinary people, Janet and, and Todd and Lene, uh, and hopefully I can add uh, a, a, a couple of things to it. You had to struggle when you were 11 years old, when you lost your mom and became a voracious reader. And obviously you have passed along your skills to your daughter, Sarah, but who taught you the importance of reading? You're always bringing up poets and great quotes. Where did that start for you? You know, uh, Doug, I've had been so fortunate. I, I, I've had so many mentors and teachers, beginning with my father and my mother. My mother was sick for almost a decade. That is an incredible teacher. She was incredibly brave and lived far longer than even her doctors predicted. But it was a devastating childhood for my younger brother, Rick, and me. And um, my father didn't do too well with it afterwards either. Um, but I got my love of film from him, who... who uh, who cried once at a movie he let me stay up and watch. Um, I had a teacher who reminded me that that there is much as much drama in what is and what was than anything that the human imagination. So this idea of being a filmmaker didn't necessarily have to be Alfred Hitchcock or John Ford. I could be, or Steven Spielberg, I could be documentary. And I had always had this love of, of, of history, of just reading and untrained. I didn't take history courses except when they made you take it. And the last course I took in history in college was Russian history. So go figure. But each of the films, particularly the early ones, have had mentors who reminded me. And so the references uh, to poetry, to literature, abound. And I think it's true if in, in any life that's curious. You wonder why it is. You know, Winton Marcellus said something to me, my goodness, it must have been in like 95. So we're, we're coming up on 30 years ago where he said in jazz, in the interview, he said, sometimes a thing and the opposite of a thing are true at the same time. It was just like, it knocked me over. 
I just, I, and it's true, you know, and we live in this media world of ones and zeros where we, everything is going to be on or off, black or white, yes or no, good or bad, rich or poor, gay or straight. And it's never like that. It's always some continuum in which there is undertow. We're human beings and our frailties, you know, to use a word that you said, are manifest. And, and the thing is, you've got to be able to, take them all in. You got to be able to look at the strengths and the weaknesses and feel you don't have to cancel somebody. You don't have to say good or bad. You just, you just hold intention these things and say, in a way, imply, isn't that an awful lot like us? Mm. You know, if you're, if you're a baseball fan and you're worried about Barry Bonds, you need to have what Tom Boswell, uh, the retiring writer for the Washington Post, said that Shakespeare had, which was negative capability. The poet John Keats said that Shakespeare had negative capability, just kept everything in tension. So, you know, the moralist in us, Tom said, wants to decide good or bad. But how can you do that? Because you'd lose, the people that are closest to you and yourself we all have these things. That's why the, the sports is so wonderful because it's, an, it's a seemingly abstract way to get at really fundamental human questions, right? And, and um, I get drawn back to it, whether it's baseball or, or boxing or, or other things because it's such an extraordinary teacher. And no teacher is a greater teacher um, than, you know, I would say Abraham Lincoln, Muhammad Ali, Louis Armstrong in jazz. These are, these are among the world's greatest teachers and how fortunate that we Americans, they're all American in the realest sense. He flew back to New York where a Louisville millionaire paid for the boxer's suite at the Waldorf Towers Hotel and gave him a roll of bills, which he used to dine on steaks and buy expensive watches for his brother and parents. Later, decked out in his gold medal and Olympic blazer, Clay visited Times Square, where he paid to have a novelty newspaper printed up with the headline, Cassius Signs for Patterson Fight. Tried his first slice of cheesecake, and at Birdland, a popular jazz club, asked the bartender for a Coke with a single drop of whiskey. Everywhere he went, well-wishers praised him for his success in Rome. Do you have even more appreciation for jazz? You use it in this documentary than you did when you actually did jazz. Yeah, you know, I'm a child of R&B and rock and roll, and that's who I am, right? And I love all that stuff. But suddenly I was introduced, mostly by Winton and by my longtime writer and collaborator, Jeffrey Ward, to this, you know, American art form that's recognized around the world. And it rearranged all my molecules. And that's, you know, I, I, I listen to it all the time. And it, it gives me, it, it's sustaining in a way. It has a kind of dimension and a nourishment that, that I love. So, yeah. I, I listened to it, but you know, I made a, I made a big series on country music too. And there's a kind of, and Winton was in it and he was reminding us of this elemental stuff, just really basic human stuff. Like, you know, the joy of birth, he said, the sadness at death, you know, finding God, getting right with God, feeling the loss of someone that you love, you know, all of these things are just part of the simple, seemingly simple country song, which are the elemental facts of our lives. And so jazz gets it in one way, country gets it in another. And, uh, and then the other arenas, politics, you know, American history, wars, 
and and uh, sports like baseball and and boxing cover it. You're driving in a car, and you can go back in time, and you have Jackie Robinson, Louis Armstrong, Abraham Lincoln, and Muhammad Ali in the car with you. Where are you taking them, and what's the first topic of conversation? You know, I pull over to the side of the road, Doug, and I turn around because I want to look at these men. And I'm sorry that they're all men because they're great. Elizabeth Cady Stanton should be in that. She's phenomenal. Harriet Tubman should be there. Ida B. Wells should be in that conversation. These are all remarkable people. Just Frank a bus, Rose, then. Maybe you'll take a bus. Maybe then. maybe it's maybe it's the bus, the bluebird bus that Muhammad <laughs> Ali had. And just turn around and talk about two things. Talk about the U.S. and talk about us. Because all of my life, I have made films about the U.S., capital U, capital S. But I've also made films about the lowercase plural pronoun, us. All of the intimacy of that and all of the majesty, the contradiction, the controversy um, of, of, of the U.S. And, and, and I, I just want to know, they, all of them in their own way, got us and got the U.S., sometimes at odds with it, sometimes in defiance, sometimes in a kind of poetic dimension, but they all um, saw something that I keep trying to get, and in my feeble way, uh, I'll never get to. I've made the same film over and over again, Doug. Who are we? You know, who are we? And, and, and these people can tell me a little bit more about who we are. That's what I want to know. I don't need to go anywhere. Maybe you take them to the Brooklyn Bridge. Maybe take them to the Grand Canyon. But they are the Brooklyn Bridge. They are the Grand Canyons of our of our uh, human um, architecture. And I uh, and and all of them I love in 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 very very special ways. I'm going to take your word. Exquisite ending, Ken, to this amazing piece of work. So emotional and really brought out what Muhammad Ali means to so many people. Ken Burns has been our guest here on Sports Jam. It's been a thrill. Congratulations on another huge success. Thank you. You're very kind, Doug. It's great to be with you. Thanks so much. You can hear all the WBGO Studio podcasts at wbgo.org slash studios or wherever you hear podcasts. Thanks for listening to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Join us next Saturday morning at 530 for another edition of the award-winning WBGO Journal. In the meantime, stay tuned to the world's greatest jazz station, WBGO and WBGO.org.